the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you new to the show, the show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. For those of you who don't know, I am an attorney. I founded the law firm of Connors & Sullivan a little over 35 years ago. And again, we do estate planning and elder law, and you're always welcome to give us a call at 718-238-6500. The second part of the show, we deal with politics, history, religion, nostalgia, and part of what I consider nostalgia is baseball. So tonight we have a, a special guest on for me, Ron Swoboda. Ron Svoboda, I have a lot of childhood memories going back to Ron Svoboda. I was in the stands when he hit his first major league home run, and I was in the stands in the World Series where he made that diving catch. Now, unfortunately, I didn't get to see a lot of that catch because everybody was jumping up. I was in right field where you really didn't have a good view, right field in Chase Stadium back then, upper deck, where you really didn't have a good view of right field. Just the stadium wasn't built that way. And so I, I, I was there when he made the catch, but I really didn't see that much of a catch. But we're going to be talking to Ron Swoboda. And, you know, right now it's kind of depressing to talk about the Mets. But at least way we can go back nearly 50 years ago when the Mets won their first World Series with Ron Swoboda in right field. My wife, Beth, has taken off tonight. So we got our producer, Chris Cordani, who's going to pinch hit and, and read some of the email questions. Well, here's the first one, Mike. In what situations and what benefits can a power of attorney be used for? It's going to be hard to answer that question in the time we have tonight. A power of attorney is a very powerful document. A power of attorney is a notarized document where you can appoint somebody, usually a family member, doesn't have to be. And the way we use it a lot in elder law is to to, to pay your bills, protect your assets. God forbid you suffer from a stroke or another disabling illness. It could be used for other purposes, maybe routine business or whatever. You can't go to the bank. You ask somebody to go to the bank. That's what a power of attorney can be used for. Usually what happens in the nature of elder law, we can use a power of attorney. In a lot of cases, let's say we want to pay, apply for home care benefits. Uh, you got a 90-year-old mother. Maybe she can't quite fill out the form. She can't comprehend the whole thing. But 
she trusts you. She trusts you to, to fill out the forms for, her, let's say, for home care benefits. She can sign a power of attorney, and then you can fill out the forms for her and sign it on her behalf. In some cases, let's say a person's incompetent. They have to go to a nursing home. We want to save what we can save. There are a lot of things where we can save if somebody's going to a nursing home. And I know there's a five-year look-back period, but we can always save something. And a power of attorney can be vital in those cases. person has a stroke. They have to go to a nursing home. We use the power of attorney. Maybe we transfer assets from husband and wife to wife. Wife signs spouse refusal. Husband gets Medicaid. Maybe we have a child living in the house. We can transfer that house into a trust, save that house from nursing home bills. Maybe it's just a case of, of doing some tax planning. Somebody has millions of dollars worth of assets. They have a stroke. Maybe we may want to continue their plan of making gifts. Maybe they make a $15,000 gift, which is allowed by law right now without filing a, a tax return. $15,000 gift to each one of their children, grandchildren, whatever. Maybe we want to pay for, for a grandchild's college education. If you're not mentally competent, that's where we use the power of attorney. And where some people get a little confused, sometimes people think, well, I don't need a power of attorney because everything I have with my spouse is joint, so why do I need a power of attorney? And isn't there an automatic right between husband and wife to sign each other's name? No, there is not. Now, yes, if you have a joint bank account, husband has a stroke, wife can go to the bank, take the money out of the bank. At the same time, though, let's say you have stock certificates. You owe stock certificates in AT&T, IBM, whatever. The stock certificate is in both names. Maybe you own a stock certificate to a co-op. The stock certificate's in both names. You cannot switch over that stock certificate from husband and wife to wife without the husband's signature unless we have a power of attorney. A power of attorney, if used properly, can literally be used to save hundreds of thousands of dollars. Give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out, they can steal you blind, so be careful. You know, I've heard stories where people, neighbors usually, they get a hold of a power of attorney and they abuse it. You got to be careful about that and don't get me wrong. But if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, God forbid you have a stroke or another disabling illness, I would strongly think about a power of attorney. And if you have a son and daughter you implicitly trust, put them on the power of attorney. If you got a nephew or niece who's like a son or daughter to you, think about putting them on the power of attorney. Because again, if you don't have a power of attorney, bad things can happen. You can end up being in court. And, and the goal of a good estate planning attorney is to keep you and your family out of court. That's our job, to keep you out of court. And if you have somebody in your family that you can trust, I strongly recommend you think about doing a power of attorney. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of the questions that gets emailed in and asks me the question on his show, which broadcasts from Monday to Friday at 5 o'clock. Now, Wednesday, he's doing the show with John Katzmatidis, but... From Monday to fri Friday at 5 o'clock on 9-7 The Answer, listen to Kevin McCullough. And on Thursdays, you're going to have a question from read by Kevin McCullough from our audience. And we'll turn it over to Kevin right now to read that question from this last week. Hi, Kevin McCullough. So glad to be able to bring you every single week a question that you've asked uh, of our attorney, Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, estate care elder law. There's no better expert on it on the planet than Mr. Mike Connors. And Mike, this week's question comes from Darius. He says, my wife predeceased me. We do not have children together. Can her children from a previous marriage contest my will? Well, the simple answer is no. Now, unless there was some kind of an agreement, you know, a contract to do a will or an agreement where, you know, half the house goes to my kids, half the house goes to your family, whatever. But absent a signed agreement, a predeceased spouse's children cannot contest your will. For better or worse, your spouse's relatives are not your relatives. Same like if you have nephews and nieces. Uh, your spouse's nephews and nieces are not your nephews and nieces under the law, for good or bad. For for good, uh, they can't contest your will. For bad, if you have no will, they're not your relatives, and they wouldn't inherit from you if, if you didn't have a will. And sometimes that leads to bad results, like, in other words, maybe the assets go to the state if they're no relatives. 
All right. So if uh, people have questions about this or any other estate care or elder law question, the Connors and Sullivan team know it inside and out. And friends, they will uh, they will give you the skinny. And it doesn't matter if you're in uh, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, in this tri-state area, Connors and Sullivan and all of their uh, locations conveniently spread out through the five boroughs uh, are there to uh, help you. Uh, Mike Connors, uh, reach them at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. That's the main office, and they can uh, set up an appointment for you. You can come in, get a free assessment of your case, and decide what to do from that point on. 718-238-6500. Mike Connors at gmail.com if you have a question of your own from Mike Connors. And, of course, be listening Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 The Mission and Saturday evenings at 6 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you again, Kevin. Chris, do we have another uh, email question? Yes, we do. This is a little bit different from what we've discussed in the past. It goes, Dear Mike, my son and I are no longer on good terms and have been so for quite some time at this point. Is there anything I should consider before I decide to disinherit him? Yes, there are quite a few things you want to consider. One, do you really want to disinherit your son? That's a drastic step. And even if you don't want to leave him everything, possibly search your mind and maybe you can come into your uh, mind to to leave him something. Again, I don't know who else is in your family. Do you have other children? But I, I would leave your son something, and not that you have to. Under the law, basically, in New York and virtually every other state, if you don't want to leave your son anything, you don't have to. I'm just encouraging you, if if you have a son, no matter what he's done, I'd probably try to leave him something. But I'm giving advice. The choice is yours. You have to decide whether your son is worthy to receive some of your assets. And again, a lot depends. Do you have other children? Are you going to leave it to charity? Are you going to leave it to nephews and nieces? You know, you have to consider what your plan is, where you want to leave it to. Now, a lot of people come into me sometimes and they say, I don't want anything to go to my son. I say, okay, who do you want to leave it to? And I get a little bit of a blank look because they haven't really thought about that. So that's what you have to think about. And again, who's going to be in charge? Obviously not your son. If you have a stroke or another dis- disabling illness, just like we talked about in the prior question, you don't want to make your son the person who's in charge of paying your bills because he may abuse the power of attorney. But what should consider? Who am I going to leave my assets to besides my son? Do I, is it really that bad that I can't leave my son something? Again, I would always strongly recommend, not that you have to, but I would strongly recommend that if you have a child, especially if it's an only child, you leave that child something. Now, if you have three or four other good kids and your one child has gotten more than his share over the years, maybe stolen from you, maybe he's borrowed money, never paid it back, well, that might be slightly different. But for the most part, when you do a will, try to name all your children in your will, because if nothing else... You don't want to start fights after you're gone. You don't want you know one child to resent what the other child is getting. But it's not a perfect world, and you have to try to come up to your best the best answer you can. And if you want to talk with us at Connors and Sullivan, you're more than welcome to talk it over. Our phone number is 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. We do not charge for the initial consultation. The initial consultation is free. And everything we do as far as estate planning and elder laws on a flat fee basis, we charge by the job, not by the hour. So you have nothing to lose. Give us a call, Connors and Sullivan, 718-238-6500. Now we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be listening to Ron Swoboda. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors and Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors and Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced
experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the U.N. published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets, step right up and greet the Mets. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. On October 15, 1969, I happened to have tickets to the World Series game, and I was sitting in the upper deck in right field, and probably was in the stadium for one of the greatest catches in World Series history. And the person who made that catch is our next guest, Ron Swoboda. How are you doing today? Well, I am doing pretty good. I'm not up to any uh, diving catches, but <laughs> it's, uh, going on 74, I can still hit the golf ball a little bit, and that's, uh, that's going to have to do it for me. All right. Now, what was going through your mind, you know, as the ball left the bat back then? Run like hell and don't stop. Um, and about 98% of the way there, I went, oh, shit, I don't think I'm going to get there. And if you didn't, that game would have been lost. Maybe. I don't yeah. think it's a given at this point because the guy on first base who would have given the Orioles the go-ahead run was Boog Powell. And I'm not sure his big butt was going to make it from first to home if the ball got by me. Now, I don't know that. I don't I don't think you can say for sure, but uh, – you know, Boog, uh, Boog could clog the bases up a little bit, um, and if he made third base, that might have been all he got. Where was Tommy Ag relative to your position? I'm, you know, I don't remember. You know, at all. you never. It's funny when you look at the video of it. Um, you never see Tommy Ag in the frame. Um, uh, that ball was sort of. It, it, you know, it was a line drive. I don't know if it was slicing towards me. It could have had some slice on it. But it was a, you know, it was a line drive that I just got after, and it just seemed like it was um, a bridge too far. And I just, you know, at that point, I had taken my line, and, and I stayed with it, ran hard, and laid out, and the damn thing hit me right in the web. And, you know, if you dissect it, go back, replay it, relive it, um, you know, try to you know, try to look backwards. Um, all you get is uh, you caught it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously, if it goes by me, we got a different ball game. Um, it turned into a pretty flashy looking sacrifice fly because Frank Robinson tagged up from third and tied the ball game and we got the out, which helped. Um, if you don't get the out, if Robinson scores and Powell makes at least third base. You've got him at third with less than two outs. And, uh, and a runner on second. An entirely different game and, and frankly, an entirely different World Series because, uh, you know, uh, we're we're into game four. We're up two games to one. If we lose that game, 
we're tied with the Baltimore Orioles who we've just, you know, given some oxygen, and that's not a bunch of guys you wanted to give any oxygen to. Now, who's pitching at that time? I, I, you know, I remember, but some of the Bieber younger was people. The yeah. And Hodges had gone out. Um, Hodges went out to talk to him. And, and it's funny because I visited Tom Seaver uh, with Art Shamsky and, and, and Jerry Kuzman and uh, Buddy Harrelson um, earlier this year. And, and um, you, you know, Sham took us out there because – He's writing a book um, about that and, and uh, you know, sort of Band of Brothers thing. I'm writing a memoir uh, about just, you know, how I fit into all of this and how my, you know, circuitous kind of up and down career led to, you know, a catch in the World Series that has, uh, you know, kept some legs over time. And, you know, so we're out there with Seaver. Seaver doesn't remember a few things. He's He struggles a bit with Lyme disease, and there's some dropout. Um, sometimes it's short-term, sometimes it's long-term. You just don't know. He was doing great when we were there, but uh, he does have some bad days, he confesses. But uh, he couldn't remember Hodges coming out there and talking to him. I know in the outfield, I knew one thing. Seaver wasn't coming out. I mean, I didn't think in that situation, you know, Seaver was going to come out of the game. Yeah, because the game has changed so dramatically. You wouldn't even think yeah. about having a pitcher in the ninth inning of a World Series game. You know, he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be in the game. Well, yeah, obviously back then, look at the complete games and, and, and of the quality pitchers, you know, the top rung of, of starting pitchers. They went out there to pitch whatever it took. I mean, Good grief! We beat um, we beat Juan Marichal in, in in it seemed like it was 15 innings he pitched against us in 1969, and you know you wouldn't want to be the guy to go out there and try to take him out. Um, and Bob Gibson was the same way. He was out there for the duration, and Seaver was in that ilk, you know. So, you know, if he could complete it, if he was strong enough, you know, you, you, who do you have in the bullpen that's a better arm than Tom Seaver? We were blessed with Tug McGraw, the left-hander, and Ron Taylor, the right-hander. But, you know, they weren't better arms than Tom Seaver. Getting back to the beginning of your baseball career, I was in the ballpark, too, on April 14, 1965, and I think I saw your first home run in extra innings. Um, my first home run was not in extra innings. It was in, like, the seventh inning against um, the Astros um, and, and – uh, um, yeah, I, I it, you know, I had I had pinch hit against uh, um, my first at bat was on opening day against Don Drysdale, and uh, my second at bat was against the Astros, and and um, um, you know, um, big hard throwing right hander, and and as we speak, his name is escaping me right now, but uh, um, it's funny, I got the. Uh, I, I got the program from that game and uh, have uh, it. Somebody traded me um, the program and and it's hanging on the wall. And Turk Farrell was the guy's name. Oh who yeah. was pitching, and he was a hard throwing right hander. Pitched with the Phillies for a number of years, and you know I hit a first pitch fastball over the second wall in left field. I never hit a ball that far, maybe in my entire career. You know, um, but my first home run, uh, you know, was a 
was a pinch hit in the game we lost. Um, you know, it was in like the seventh inning or eighth inning, something like that. But, um, you know, young and dumb and didn't didn't know what I couldn't do, you know, and I just up there hacking. Uh, I didn't have any strategy. Um, you know, who wouldn't go up there in a game you're trailing against Turk Farrell and, and not look first pitch fastball? Now, let me ask you something. If I remember correctly, you did not play a long time in the in the minor leagues. No. Um, you know, the, the oddity back then was before the draft was instituted by baseball to kind of keep the the um, bonus thing under control and put it in sort of a sequence, you know, before the uh, free agent draft, everybody was signed as a free agent to hold down the wealthy clubs from paying out uh, all the money and buying up all the good talent, they had a rule called a first-year rule, which meant if you had on any team played one year of organized professional baseball, unless that team protected you in one of a couple ways, you could be drafted by another team. Um, The Mets, in their ignorance, failed to protect Paul Blair who uh, was their property in 64 until he went over to the Orioles um, in the winter before 64. Paul Blair, of course, was one of the top, you know, two or three center fielders of his generation. Um, The Mets lost him by failing to protect him. And um, I think in a reaction to that, in 1965, the Mets decided to protect four of us first-year players, Um, me, Tug McGraw, uh, Jim Bethke, a sort of sinker slider right-hander who did not play much in the big leagues, and um, Danny Napoleon, a right-handed hitter um, uh, who went to Ryder College. Um, they 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 kept four of us on the big league roster all year long to protect us, and they sent out a right-handed pitcher. You could designate one player to send out to the minor leagues. Uh, in in a, a right-hander, Dennis Menke had a. Uh, Dennis uh, right Ry- uh, no Dennis Dennis uh, Ryben. Musgraves Dennis Musgraves, Musgraves. okay a big curveball big curveball I don't know you know we didn't know velocities on his fastball then but he, he was a big curveball pitcher um, you know never never did a whole lot in the big leagues but they protected all these players Tug and I uh, you know Tug Tug had his great career with both the Mets and with uh, Philadelphia and was in a couple of World Series. And, you know, I got nine years of big league ball. So we were, you know, of those guys they protected, we were, you know, the the two successful ones. Now, in retrospect, do you think it hurts your career not playing more in the minor leagues? Yeah, I felt like um, I felt like I got to the big leagues way ahead of um, of, of my maturity, um, my understanding of the game. I didn't know anything about baseball. And, um, you, you know, you certainly, you know, back then uh, could have used could have used some time. But don't forget, the Mets were looking for something. You know, they they were, you know, looking for somebody to put people in the stands. And, and um, I sort of the first year was a gimme. And what do I do? I, I blossom into something. Casey starts playing me in 1965. I hit 15 home runs and drove in. 35 runs, hit almost, uh, you know, hit 240-something in the first half of the season. Um, I don't think I had a year, uh, you know, I never hit 15 home runs in a whole year after that. So whatever it was, I didn't know. I was better off not knowing it. Now, what was it like to play for Casey Stengel? 
Awesome. Casey, of course, was a legend walking around in flesh and blood, but he had, you know, all those great years with the Yankees and, and his wonderful Stingleese, which everybody thought was some doddering old fool, or, or at least some people had that impression. Uh, but there was always a method to Casey's madness. Um, I think he he loved to entertain. Um, he understood exactly what he was doing with the Mets back then. He was uh, giving the writers something to write about uh, and protecting a team that didn't have any talent from getting constantly bashed in the newspapers. So Casey knew exactly what, what he was about and, and did it. And, and I always listened to him when he talked his his rambling to some people was were parables to me the stories always had a point they always applied to something that was going on um if you just listened you know and you know if you were standing there with a camera and a microphone you might be a little um uh, disconcerted uh, lost you know um uh, in in the run around the the primrose path but but there was a point to everything he said he just said it in you know, greater flourish than most people would. And, he, you know, the point was he was trying to entertain. But Casey knew more baseball than most people ever forgot. Very true. Or he forgot he forgot more baseball than, than most people ever knew would be, I guess. The I don't think he forgot it. very much. I think that was he remembered oh, everything, he supposedly. Your name. I yeah, mean, well, you I... know, he, he always had trouble with people's names. He yeah, call you by number. Close to it. Yeah. You know, he called me Sabota. He called... Uh, Chris Canazero was a catcher for us. He called him Canzaneri. Um, Pignatano was a catcher early on. Joe Pignatano, who's still kicking, bless his Italian soul. He uh, used to live in the neighborhood here. And, and, and the only one left from that coaching staff in 1969. But he called him Pignatani. And, and, and you know, it was it was sort of... <laughs> it, it led into great stories about Casey not, not knowing people's names, but he knew who you were, and and he knew I was Sabota, whether he called me Ron Swoboda, or which he never did. Um, he knew who Sabota was, and 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 I was happy every time I heard him say my name, except for that first time when he sent me up to bat against Don Drysdale on opening day. I thought I'd have a heart attack. Um, you know, I wasn't I, in my mind. I wasn't ready for Don Drysdale. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. We're talking to Ron Sabota of the 1969 New York Mets. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com. 
backslash Fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. We've been talking to Ron Soboda of the 1969 New York Mets. All right, so you hang around. Wes Westrom becomes manager, and then he's replaced by Gil Hodges. What was it like to play with for Gil Hodges? Well, Gil Hodges, you, you know, uh, was a guy whose concept of the game was uh, was laser beam like, um, and and the game he was always his mind was always ahead of the game. Um, he understood what he was trying to do and, and, and was not afraid to do it. He made the move that he thought he should make in the game at the time. You may not like it, but it was about doing the best thing for the team that he could do. And I'll tell you what, in 1969, he was, um, you know, he was almost prophetic in, in, in the moves he made um, and, and the times he did them. And, you know, when he would, you know, he didn't spend a lot of time, you know, if you were not playing well, he wasn't, he didn't yell at a lot of people. You know, he wouldn't haul you in there and yell at you. He spoke in soft tones, but you would understand what where, where Gil was, was where, what he was thinking by what he did. His actions uh, spoke a lot louder than his words, and, and you got the you got the message. There was no doubt about that, and and I think he was one of the sharpest baseball minds that that I ever experienced. And I played for Gene Mock half a season with Montreal. I think Hodges was every bit as good as him. He was, in my book, way ahead of uh, uh, DeRocher. I got a feeling. I have the feeling if Hodges managed the Cubs in '69 and uh, DeRocher managed the Mets, uh, we wouldn't have been close to the World Series. Getting back to the World Series, you, you had no expectations at the beginning of the year you'd be playing in the World Series, or did you? Well, at 100 to 1, uh, it was a good bet, apparently, um, uh, in 1969. Um, but uh, I think we, we thought, you know, that season opened. We thought if we, you know, Hodges said something about this team could win 85 games, just a guess. And I think we looked around at one another and went, wow, we win, 100, we win 85 games. We've had a hell of a year. I was thinking this was a team that would take the next step. If we could creep over 500, that would be progress for us because I had been around since 65 and I lost 100 games a couple of years. So, you know, breaking 500 would, would have been, uh, you know, would have been marvelous. Uh, but but something happened, you know, Um you remember, and, and maybe a lot of people have forgotten, but uh, the the Mets um, in, got involved with the Braves in a potential trade for Joe Torre, a New York guy, a great hitter. Um, and, and, and the Braves wanted to really get into the Mets' young talent. They wanted Amos Otis. They wanted Nolan Ryan. They wanted uh, Kuzman. You know, they wanted to get in there where where it hurt with your young talent. And the Mets were like, no, no, no. We don't know where this is going we're not giving away our young talent. Well, the thing that changed that whole season in my book was in in June of that year, towards the end of June, middle of June towards the end, we went on a on an 11 game a completely unpredictable 11 game win streak. It started at Shea in New York against the West Coast teams 
and continued on the road as we went to the West Coast. We won 11 straight, and, and it put us in, you know, we had been bubbling around 500, and all of a sudden now you win 11 straight. We're, we're, we're in the hunt, at least numerically, in June. That's when I think the Mets front office got their heads together and said, all right, let's see what we can do because we've made ourselves relevant here. We need maybe another bat. That's obvious. Where's one out there that's gettable? And they looked right at the Montreal Expos, and they were trying to trade Don Clendenin, whom they had picked up in the draft because they were an expansion team. He came from Pittsburgh, and they wanted the, the uh, mock wanted to trade him to Houston, where Harry Walker was, an avowed racist that Clendenin wanted no part of and would not accept the deal. And Clendenin was the perfect guy because he was going to law school, working for the Scripto Corporation, the Pens, and in the winter, and he had an option. And his option was, I can retire right now and go to work. Um, if you want to try to trade me there. And so uh, they told him to hang loose um, and and uh, hang loose and we'll we'll see what we can do. They talked him into playing for Montreal, which he did, um, and see what happens. Well, what happens was the Mets came around and said, all right, we'll give you Steve Renko, uh, Kevin Collins, and a couple of other guys uh, for Clendenin. And uh, I think it was a huge and good deal for the Mets. We gave up nothing, really, uh, that was going to hurt us in the future. Renko was an excellent pitcher. Um, Kevin Collins was a marginal guy that uh, didn't play much Major League Baseball and um, went on to be an, an NHL uh, referee. How about that? But but uh, anyway, we make the deal for Clinton, and he comes in ready to go. We got right-handed pop to platoon with Crean, pull at second. We're platooning at, uh, you know, uh, six or seven slots around, uh, you know, around in, in position players. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we've still got that same pitching staff. And I believe that that got us going a little bit. And, and we, uh, we started rolling a little bit. You know, it, it wasn't immediate. But we knew we had more potential with Clendenin's bat in the lineup and, and maybe his personality in the clubhouse because he was, you know, as I write uh, about it, he was the only clubhouse lawyer I ever knew who was actually studying to become a lawyer and eventually became one. Right. And, and what does it feel like? And I know you can't describe it, but what does it feel like to, to be a member of a world champion team? Well, you know, baseball – Baseball's a game you you know you started you know you don't most guys you don't get to the you don't get to the professional side of the game without playing all those other uh amateur levels along the way and and all the things other things you did as a kid uh that were related to baseball you know hitting rocks into the woods uh with a broomstick uh, uh playing ball with your buddies uh where you just got together and played ball playing more organized amateur baseball and moving up through the levels playing a little freshman ball at the University of Maryland um playing in the Johnstown tournament and having a good tournament and getting yourself signed by the New York Mets and then there you are in the you know in professional baseball and you know as we talked about before 
you get to the big leagues a lot faster than you thought you would, but here you are. What are you going to do? You know, you're going you're gonna to go out there and, and play it to the best of your ability. It all seems a little magic, and it's all moving kind of quickly. And, you know, at, at, at 25 years old in 1969, you at least felt like you belonged a little bit in this big league thing. And, and, um, and, and the dream is still out there. You know, I, I think as we started rolling along in 69, it was still, a, you know, a reach to even think about a World Series. You know, and remember, that was the first year of the playoffs. You know, there was a National League Playoff Series instituted that year because they broke up into divisions with the expansion uh, to San Diego and Montreal. So you're, you know, you're you're getting paid to play this game. That's pretty damn exciting in and of itself. You're you're on a team with young arms, and 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 suddenly you're getting a little better offensively, and 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 you're you've played everybody into July and and into August. You've played everybody, and you're 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 thinking we can play with all these people. Now we haven't done anything, but you're but you're hunting the Cubs. The Cubs basically established themselves as the team to beat. And we're playing pretty good against them, playing tough baseball against them, and and uh, you know we're getting we're getting the better end of the deal against the the Cubs, the team you have to beat. But they're still playing good against everybody else, and it's five six games, and you know going into the end of August they have a little wobble, and it goes down to two and a half games, and you're thinking, well they're they're human after all with Billy Williams and. Uh, Ron Santo and Ferguson Jenkins and uh, Kenny Holtzman and Hands and all those guys, um, you're thinking, uh, you know, maybe we can get these guys, you know, and then they build it back up and you're like, ah, rats. But the Cubs were wobbling, and, and at the end of August into early September, they go into a skid right when we're playing as hot as we played all year long. I mean, we kicked it up a notch, and they – and they went into a spiral downward. And that's when we played up even to them at Shea, and then we went on by them. And as we continued to play good and they struggled, and, and we blew by them and never really looked back. Um, that was, you know, beyond uh, beyond our fantasies. But, you know, here we were. We're rolling, you know. We're rolling. We're gonna. We're into the playoffs. We don't know who it's going to be. Atlanta, San Francisco, Cincinnati. We don't know. But the season rolls out. It turns into Atlanta. You know, here's a formidable batting lineup with Aaron and Cepeda and um, you, you know uh, Rico Cardi and you know uh, uh, Cleet Boyer and and some pretty damn good hitters. Philippe Luz in on that ball club and. So we, we we basically go in there, and our left-handed platoon rakes them. You know, we go into Atlanta, win two, two blowouts. There was a little back and forth, but the bottom line was we blew them out. And then we come back to Shea Stadium with a chance to put them away, and we put them away, you know. And Hodges is making just incredible, incredible playoff decisions that uh, never never hesitated, never hesitated. Um, 
and you go into the World Series, and, and what is it in the World Series but my hometown team, the Baltimore Orioles, and Brooks Robinson, a guy I idolized as a kid um, in Baltimore, you know, um, worked out with the Baltimore Orioles. I was in the clubhouse with them. You know, uh, I had worn a Baltimore Orioles uniform as an amateur, as a kid, because I played for an area scout of the Orioles, but they had signed they had signed a guy um, um, and spent a lot of money, and, um, I, I, you know, maybe they didn't think they needed me, and, and I never got – I never heard anything from the Orioles. It was the Mets that walked in the front door and offered me thirty-five grand to play baseball. You know, when you've grown up sort of upper lower, you know, economic class, your mom and dad making about, you know, twelve, five, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 a year total between them, and somebody walks in and writes $35,000 down on a piece of paper, you better move the hell away from that piece <laughs> of paper, or you might get run over. Now, let me ask you about uh, another great game in that year. You had one of your greatest games against Steve Carlton. Can you tell the audience yeah. about that one? You know, Carlton, Carlton was a great left-handed pitcher, and it was a, it, it, it was a make-up game, um, as it turns out. We went to make up a game that got rained out earlier in the year, so we went to St. Louis for one ball game. And we bopped in there, and I wasn't feeling that great as a hitter, but I was, you know, I was all right. But I was just, you know, I don't know why, for some reason, Ralph Kiner was around, and, and, and in St. Louis they had one of the first hitting cages with a one of those wheel machines that, that you could pump baseballs through. And for some reason, I asked Ralph if he would come down there and just look at me a little bit and feed me some balls through this machine and let me hit some. And, you know, that was the first and only time we ever did it. Kiner got permission, and, you know, Kiner, Ralph Kiner was a great right-handed hitter. So we went down there, and he said, yeah, that looks good. Yeah, move your hands up. Get them back a little bit. Let's see. Bend down. Yeah, you look like you're ready. That That body, that position looks good. And then you're swinging at a few, and he said, yeah, that looks fine. And, and for some reason, I walked out of the cage feeling like maybe we got a little something done. And, and it was right out of that into the game. And here's Carlton with some of the best stuff he ever had. He's going to set a, you know, a, a major league individual game record for strikeouts with 19. And I'm going to you know, strike out twice myself. And and the game went this way. They took a one nothing lead. I had struck out. We had uh, either Ag or Clendenin on base. My second time up with two strikes. I hit a fastball upstairs to left field, and we're up two to one. They score and go up three to two. I strike out my third time up, and the fourth time up with two strikes on me. Carlton throws me this slider down and in, and for some reason I get to it. I get to it and hit a line drive just over the left field wall, and we win the ball game four to three. And and afterwards, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm uh, uh, Harry Carey is the play-by-play uh, -play guy for the Cardinals, and he has me in there to do a post game with him. And I walk in the room, and there's Steve Carlton sitting there, and I went, "Well, this is uncomfortable." And and Carlton looks like a guy who just found out that somebody ran over his dog with the car, and and. You know, I'm trying to figure out what's this all about. And what happened? I'm sorry. I did the interview. We won the <laughs> ball game, and we moved on. 
What are you doing today? Right now, I'm walking forward to open the front door because a man is coming to my house. Uh, actually, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm... Uh, I'm, I'm actually the play, I'm a color guy for the AAA baseball team. That's what I do um, in the summer for the AAA baby cakes. We're the AAA team of the Miami Marlins. So I stayed a little close to the current professional game uh, doing these games here in New Orleans. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a sheer joy. It has never been five seconds of work and I try to do it well I try to understand the game and what's going on now and um, I feel like um, I feel like I can bring a little perspective to it and and it is uh, it is an endless joy how long have you been in New Orleans now I got here in 1981 uh, as a TV sports guy I did 20 years of local TV sports which started in New York at WCBS with with Jim Jensen and some wonderful reporters, um, wonderful reporters, J.J. Gonzalez, Chris Borgen, uh, John Tesh was there. Um, Dave Marish was my real good friend. He was a co-anchor guy uh, on the late news there. But uh, Dave Marish, uh, one of the best reporters uh, I ever got to know and still a good friend of mine. And I understand you're interested in, what is it, jazz down there in New Orleans? Well, I mean, look, if you live in New Orleans, back when I got here, the late sets, uh, Dave Marish really lorded me around uh, New York when I was doing working for WCBS. And we went to, um, you know, the Village Vanguard and uh, the Blue Note and other places, other venues. And he introduced me to jazz players and and the music itself, and we'd discuss it afterwards, and it, and it just sort of stuck. So when I came to New Orleans, which really is more of a rhythm and blues town, but, you know, you you can find good jazz music here, and a lot of the guys that play jazz music play rhythm and blues also, because if you're a musician down here, you need to play all the music and do all the gigs you can. And, and so I, I, you know... One of the beauties uh, uh, when I got here in 81 in New Orleans is the late set at, at, a, at a three or four jazz places that I went to. The late set was 11 o'clock. So I could do the 10 o'clock news a half an hour, bust out of there, and get to wherever I needed to go in New Orleans because this is like a 20, 25-minute, half-hour town. You can get anywhere you want in a half an hour, and I would go listen to that late set and because I was a sports guy on television, you know, the, the 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 players were, you know, they were sports fans. And I would hang out with them, and they'd want to know about the New Orleans Saints and I'd uh, and what's going on with LSU. And uh, um, and I'd I'd want to know what what am I seeing here with this uh, with this set that you know what was going on. What do I need to know? What let's you know uh, we traded a little information and 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 as a result i you know i became a better jazz fan and and knew a little something about it you know and it was not like global jazz like i had to listen to everybody that ever played any jazz but i have a few favorites and got to know branford marsalis and uh, uh, you know one of the more interesting people i've ever met uh, in the music business, uh, who will tell you what's up? Okay. So, any plans on retiring? 
What do you want to retire? You know, um, if I retire, I will, I will retain strong hobbies and things that fire me up because I think that's what you have to do. You know, it's my dad just passed away at the end of April. Bless his soul at ninety ninety six. God and bless you. He was out of gas at ninety six, and and uh, we threw a birthday party for him. And after the birthday party, he stopped taking his medicine. And I think he had decided uh, that uh, he was going to let nature take its course, and uh, and it did. Uh, and um, he went quietly in his sleep. Uh, with dignity, all the dignity he deserved as a, you know, World War II guy that, uh, you know, waist gunner in a B-29, and he deserved that dignity. He he managed it. But I think um, I, I'm going to try to stay active and, and, and try to, you know, better live the time I get. It's not it's not about how long. It's the quality of, of life you can have. And my wife and I, are lucky enough to be together. We've been married uh, this year will be 53 years and uh you know we have one another and uh, I'm 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 with the best friend I've ever had and and uh you 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 can't do better than that, you know? I don't think. No, you can't. Ron Swoboda, thank you for us old New York Met fans for the memories that you gave us especially in 1969. Well, hang in there. Better days are coming. We're I all hope fans so. and um, you know, I care. I care, and that you know sometimes caring can be a curse, <laughs> but but you have to hang in there and 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 hang with them. Things will change. Well, thank you for the memories. Thank you for talking You're to us welcome. today. Take care. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate taxes and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected i'm mike connors founder of connors and sullivan people don't plan to fail they fail to plan the time to plan is now i'm beth connors call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers connors and sullivan in brooklyn queens manhattan and staten island call 718-238-6500 718-238-6500 or connors and Sullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. You know, talking to Ron Svoboda really brought back some fond memories. I know, Chris, you're way too young to know about the 1960. Well, you know about the 1969 season, but uh, you obviously didn't experience it. But it was an almost magical time. Well, and I think you, I sort of experienced it. I just don't remember because I was a little baby. I was uh, born in 69. Yeah, okay. So you're born in 69. You didn't remember. <laughs> that was like me. You know, my father said I was there for Bobby Thompson's home run in the 1951 playoffs, but I don't remember too much about it. But, you know, I, I you know, I surprised to remember Ron Spoda was only 25 years of age when he was playing in that World Series. It's just remarkable. And, you know, a lot of those guys, unfortunately, didn't have long careers like Ron Svoboda. That be as it may, again, this show is 
about estate planning and elder law. So, Chris, if somebody wants to email us a question, where do they email the question to to, to get a question about elder law and estate planning answered? You can email Mike Connors by asking him a question. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. That's ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. Now, if you don't feel like doing it that way, we have a Facebook page, Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Like the page, and you can send a message to us that way. Also on the Connors & Sullivan website, connorsandsullivan.com, we have a contact us form. And we also have a new chat feature where you can have a question addressed to you immediately. Now, on, uh, on AskTheLawyer.com or on Facebook, why should somebody like us on Facebook? You can find out what we're doing, uh, what uh, is happening in the next shows, where you've been. You're out and about a lot, um, Mike. Uh, you do a lot of uh, uh, charity stuff and, and take some pictures of some pretty cool people. Also, we put our classic interviews up on the YouTube channel and uh, make sure our Facebook viewers get to see that, too. You know, speaking about charitable events, uh, a couple of weeks ago we met Bobby Valentine at a fundraiser for Catholic Charities at Brooklyn and Queens. And I think he's going to be on our show in a couple of weeks talking about his baseball career. And he's had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of downs through his career. But he's a remarkable individual. He has my respect because he always keeps bouncing back. And he's still there today smiling. So Bobby Valentine in a couple of weeks will have more details on that. So is that going to be announced on Facebook? Yes, we're going to announce that on Facebook. Keep an eye on that. And, of course, Bobby Valentine, the master of disguise, will be uh, on with... Mike Connors. Yeah, well, I don't think I'm going to talk about mustaches or fake mustaches <laughs> or something like that. Ichiro tried to pull that, too. Yeah, well, I, I don't know why he would. But in any event, we're going to be back next week at the same times. In the meanwhile, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. I think, uh, I think it's time to go. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this all the way. know someone who's been touched by cancer it's the second leading cause of death and it took the life of my father john wayne but even in his final days he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer his courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big c as my dad called it so we did something about it and founded the john wayne cancer institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.